The following is a message by Joel Bain, the lead pastor at Grace Family Church in St. Catherine, Jamaica. To learn more about Grace Family Church, visit gracefam.church. This past week, as Sam and I and the kids spent some time with our in-laws, uh, I had the opportunity to be a part of a conversation with a close family friend of theirs who've, whom I've gotten to know a bit over the years. She, as she said that evening, is not religious. But she was asking some questions about reading the Bible and about Christianity. Eventually, she started talking about the church and her history with the church. You know, she mentioned that she had had some experiences in her past that had shaped her posture towards church. And of course, you know, she hadn't given any details at that point in time, but judging by the fact that she was not religious, we read between the lines and realized, okay, clearly something bad went down. And eventually, as the conversation went on, she told us her story. Like many Jamaicans, she was raised in the church as a child. Her mother was very involved in the local church and her mother would take her along and uh, uh, because she was a bright child, she got involved in things and she would be the one that asked to come onto the platform to recite scripture and that sort of thing. But her mother died when she was eight years old. And to her puzzlement at the time, her funeral was not held in the church they attended, but in the yard of their family home. Years later, she came to understand why. Her mother was unmarried. So the church that she fellowshiped at and served was not willing to host her funeral in the church. They didn't do that for onward mothers. So our friend, though these days happy to visit a church on occasion if she's invited, has no interest in being a part of a church. She believes herself to be a decent person, and I would certainly agree with that assessment. And she doesn't think going to church is necessary. Like many others, she has recognized that there are many horrible people in churches and many wonderful people who do not attend church. So why should she have to be a part of a church? Her story grieved me. Both historically and currently, there's so much that's broken in the church and so many ways in which we hurt people. I always wish that after these conversations I could have a redo because, you know, you, you start to replay it and think back on the conversation, you realize moments that you probably could have you know, said something really helpful. You know, I, I, I've come to realize that ultimately I don't depend on myself and saying all the right things in a conversation. And really it's the Holy Spirit that speaks through our imperfect efforts to love and to care for people. But if I had the chance to do it again, I think I'd have listened more closely and said a bit less and not tried to answer the first questions that came at me. I, in a fulsome way, because often the first question a person asks is not the most important question that they have. But I left the conversation with a question of my own. Why do I believe that church matters? For me, of course, that question is not just philosophical, but personal. Why did I choose to disrupt my family's life with my wife's gracious agreement? Thank you, honey. Uh, and to dedicate my life to planting this church. Admittedly, I've had largely, though not exclusively, positive experiences growing up in church. But are those positive experiences the reason I am committed to the church and to this church? Is the church just kind of my thing? You know, I just, I just, I just love it. I, I've, I've always loved it. And is it clearly not her thing in the case of my family friend? Does church really matter? Or is it a matter of taste? 
Should our commitment to it transcend our preferences and our offenses? Why should it not be based on our experience and conditioned on our enjoyment? I am convinced from the scriptures that the church matters more than we can possibly grasp. And here's my contention. The church of Jesus Christ is the focal point of God's gracious work in the universe and the fountain of his grace to us and through us. The church is a big deal. In fact, there is no bigger deal. The church that Jesus is building is the most important thing God has been and is doing on this planet and in the entire universe since he created it all. Period. Despite its many sins and shortcomings, the church is an entirely unique kind of community. A community where Jesus lives, one that reflects his beauty, where his grace springs up for God's people and from God's people to the whole world. The church of Christ is the focal point of God's gracious work in the universe and the fountain of his grace to us and through us. Today, I'm going to attempt something and fail gloriously at it. You see, it's not possible for me to paint a picture of the church of Christ in any way that's adequate in one sermon. I don't think that it's possible at all, even if I were to preach on this over many weeks. I feel a bit like a child with crayons trying to draw something akin to the Sistine Chapel. But so precious is the church to God. So central is she to his purposes. And therefore in the big story of the scriptures that this faltering effort is a worthwhile endeavor. My prayer and my hope is that this morning's crude crayon drawing will offer you a glimpse of the magnificence of the church of Christ. And that such a glimpse will infuse your thinking about and participation in church with new meaning and energy. We are going to fix our gaze on the church by considering two pairs of truths about her. First, we'll contemplate the church universal and local, and then we'll contemplate the church gathered and sent. And by necessity, we're going to be mining truths from all over the scriptures. So we're not in a single passage this morning. I'm going to take you several places, and what, we, what we'll do is we'll project key scriptures up there so you don't have to be running all over the place in your Bibles. So let's look at the church, universal and local. Sean, Sheldon, and I have been privileged to plant this church as a part of a denomination that teaches a very high view of the church. That was clear to us during our pastoral training. And it's also clear if you read the section entitled The Church of Christ in our Statement of Faith. Now you can access our Statement of Faith through our website, gracefarm.church. Uh, there's a, a section on, for, uh, called beliefs and you'll find a link to it there. I'm going to rely on parts of that statement to help to articulate truths that we need to contemplate this morning. And I'm likely to file this sermon under our Where We Stand series, which is a series we started last summer, which articulates and celebrates the doctrinal convictions that we share with all the churches in Sovereign Grace. I want you to do something for me this morning. Take a moment to look around you. Now, I don't mean at the beautiful surroundings behind us. I, I want you to turn your head, as long as you can do so comfor comfortably, and take a good look at the people who surround you. Look in all directions. Look at their faces. This is a church. We are a church. So despite the fact that we've been accustomed to referring to a fit-to-purpose building, a meeting place, as a church, in reality, the church is a people. 
So we can't actually go to church, but we can gather with the church. But if we're going to understand the church better, we need a much better vantage point in time and space than what we can see by looking around in this hall. In fact, we cannot understand the significance of what we see when we look around at each other without that vantage point. We are given that better view in the Bible. The story it tells us from cover to cover takes us literally from the beginning of time to the end of the age to the start of the age to come. It transports us into the details of how the whole universe came to be and events that involve individuals and families and nations on three continents. And it culminates in the book of Revelation describing happenings in earth and and in heaven. The star of the whole story, of course, is God. But what is God doing throughout the story? Here's a very helpful summary that I was taught. God's mission is to bless and dwell with a people he has created, redeemed, and restored for his glory. Let me read that for you again. God's mission is to bless and dwell with a people he has created, redeemed, and restored for his glory. It's biblically sound to refer to those people as the church, which is immediately helpful to us. That means even though in one sense we can look around and say that we are a church, We can recognize that we are a small fraction of the church as it exists in the whole world in our time and a minuscule fraction of the church as it was and will be throughout time. This means that we are a part of something massive, the universal church, a personal project and precious people that God has been focused on since the dawn of time. Here's how we capture this in our statement of faith. The universal church is the true worshipping community of God's people, composed of all the elect from all time. Throughout salvation history, God, by his word and spirit, has been calling sinful people out of the whole human race to create a new redeemed humanity whom Christ purchased with his blood. God created us as humanity to be a worshipping community. That's what we see in Genesis 1 and 2. Adam and Eve were created in the image of God for communion with God and and with each other to reflect the glory of God and to fill the earth with image bearers. But they rebelled against God by disobeying his commands and things went downhill from there for the whole creation. And we, the rest of humanity, were born inheriting their rebellion in this broken world, suffering under God's judgment. But their sin didn't alter God's mission. It only served to advance it. So God promised a redeemer and preserved a flawed but righteous line of humanity, righteous by virtue of faith in God. Eventually, God chose a man and promised that through his offspring, he would bless all the nations of the world. That man was Abraham, originally named Abram. And most of the Old Testament traces the story of his descendants, whom God chose and set apart as his holy nation, even though they rebelled against him time and time again. From a chronological standpoint, the story of the Old Testament ends with a remnant of God's people who returned from the judgment of exile to the land God had given them, waiting for God's promise of a Redeemer. But I want to jump back to Abraham for a moment. In Genesis 15, God has a conversation with Abraham in which he affirms his covenant, his solemn promise to him for the second time. To understand this scene, you need to know that Abraham 
had no children at this point in time. And he was in his 80s. This is Genesis 15 verse 5. And he brought him outside and said, Look toward heaven and number the stars if you are able to number them. Then he said to him, So shall your offspring be. I was thinking about this scene and you know, I've been, I've been wanting for the last, well, I guess it's, it's going into months now to do some nighttime photography with my fancy new phone. And the nights have been, first of all, we've had a lot of overcast nights. Uh, and then secondly, you're trying to find a spot where all the electric light isn't blocking out the stars. You know, so, so imagine the view Abraham had in a time long before electricity of just the vista of heaven. I mean, it must have been breathtaking. But what's equally as breathtaking is to recognize that if you have trusted in Jesus, you are in this scene. The songwriter Rich Mullins coined it in a way that has been unforgettable for me. He said, sometimes I think of Abraham, how one star he saw had been lit for me. Each and every one of us who has come to faith in Christ is Abraham's offspring, related to him by faith. We are a part of the innumerable constellations that God promised would descend from Abraham, the majority of the universal church. In Romans chapter 4, the Apostle Paul argues that Abraham was justified, that is made right with God, by faith, by trusting God's word and promise, rather than by his good works. He goes on to teach that Abraham's true descendants are not necessarily his blood relatives, marked by circumcision, but those who resemble him in faith whether they are Jews or non-Jews. This is Romans 4, verse 16. That is why it depends on faith, in order that the promise may rest on grace and be guaranteed to all his offspring, not only to the adherents of the law, but also to the one who shares the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. So the well-known children's song is true. Father Abraham had many sons, and I am one of them, and so are you. Without attempting to explain the nuanced relationship between Israel and the church today, between God's people under the old covenant and under the new covenant, we can affirm, as John Frame does in his systematic theology, essentially the church is the people of God in all ages. And here's the thing that the New Testament affirms. There can be no people of God at any time or in any place without the redemptive work of Christ. It is the atoning work of Jesus that pays for the sins of Abraham and all the Old Testament saints so that they can be counted as righteous before God through faith. In Romans 3, 21 to 26, Paul explains that Jesus' death demonstrated God's righteousness, which appeared to be in question for centuries because God was overlooking sins. I mean, it looked, if you read the Old Testament, like God had favorites. One guy would sin in one way and he'd get killed. Another guy would sin in the same way and God would be like, your sin has been put away. How does that work? How, how is that even fair? But God was able to overlook sins because he knew that at the right time he would send his son to pay for sins. Revelation 7, 9 and 10 give us a picture of the gathered universal church. After this I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number, from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes, with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne 
and to the Lamb. The Lamb, of course, is Jesus. And he's referred to that way as an eternal reminder of his death on behalf of his people from every tribe and every time. Ephesians 1, 20-23 teaches that God the Father raised Christ from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and above everything else that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. So here's what I want you to see. Jesus rules over everything as the head of his universal church, which is his body. The gathering and redemption of the church for the glory of God is the story told in all of Scripture. The church of Christ is the focal point of God's gracious work in the universe. And that is what it make, that's what makes it magnificent and significant beyond our ability to grasp. But what's the relationship then between the universal church and the local church? The local church then is an instance of the universal church, a visible expression of it in space and time and relationships. I was able to read a couple of uh, chapters from some very good books as I prepared. Uh, one of them I'd recommend is called Love Your Church by Tony Merida. And he offers this description. He says, the local church is like a little embassy of the greater kingdom of God, living under the gracious rule of Christ. That means that we as a local church are a dramatically different kind of community from any other human community that has ever existed or will exist. Uh, it was interesting. I was up here, I think, Thursday, and you know, I came, hopefully, trying to find some peace and quiet, and then they were having a sales meeting in here. You know, so that didn't work out. Um, but I'm listening to the sales meeting and they're kind of celebrating their milestones, you know, for, for the past year. And just a, a number of people who are celebrating their milestones and who are being congratulated were just giving praise to God. And, you know, you could have listened at a moment in time and confused that gathering for church. Because there's somebody on the mic saying, I just want to thank God for, you know, his blessings to me this year and for my family and all these things. But... That's not a church. And it was just interesting as I sat down trying to write about the church to recognize the difference because of God's purpose in when we gather from any other type of gathering. So we're going to contemplate the nature and significance of the local church more under my second point, the church gathered and sent. But what I want to do is briefly tease out a couple of implications about the universal and local nature of the church. You see, this understanding of the universal church is not just this lofty, dizzying, head-in-the-clouds theology. It grounds our approach to life as a local church. For example, it directs us towards investing in our relationships with each other because these relationships with each other are an expression of God's glorious plan and the story that He has been writing from before the beginning of time that will continue on into eternity. No, see, what that's, what that's going to do is it's going to dignify every conversation you have during give and greet. It's going to motivate every instance in which you step out from your comfort zone to reach towards a brother and sister. Having a high view of the church, recognizing that God is at work among us to redeem us and mature us, insulates you from the negative experiences that you're going to inevitably have in any local church. Some of those experiences can be deeply painful. The scriptures teach that in the end, Jesus will present the church to himself in splendor, 
without flaw, without sin, spot, or wrinkle. A number of us uh, were at Patrick and Jade's wedding the other day, and Jade walked down the aisle as a picture of that. She was stunning. Remembering what we will be keeps us from abandoning each other because of what we are like now. Recognizing that God is doing something magnificent among us helps us not to, to fall into going through the motions when what we're doing feels monotonous because, you know, it's another Sunday and we're doing the same things again. Being in awe of God's love for His universal church helps us not to be insular or tribalistic. GFC is not the right church. You know that question that many Jamaicans ask, uh, which is the right church? Uh, it's actually the wrong question. The better question that we need to point people towards is how can you identify a faithful and healthy church? We believe that by God's grace, GFC is a faithful and healthy church. And we might be a good church for you, but we are not the right church. We're not perfect by any means. Similarly, sovereign grace is not the right denomination. I mean, we love to celebrate the grace of God that we continue to experience through our family, but it would be wrong for us to behave as if we have a monopoly on God's grace. You see, we're actually called to count all of our brothers, or all of those who are united with and following Jesus in faith and repentance as family, even though we may disagree with them on secondary or tertiary matters. And even if they, in our estimation, have glaring flaws or are guilty of sins that we find particularly offensive. I don't have time to get this morning to get into how we walk that out. But what I'm highlighting is the posture needed for walking that out. We need to be aware of the temptation, even if we love our local church, to speak about the wider church as if we are detached critics. To speak of they and them rather than we and us. You see, to belong to Jesus is to belong to the universal church, warts and all. And we can't influence anything that's broken without owning and loving our brothers and sisters. Now, there are other implications of this pair of truths, the church, universal, and local, that I could tease out if time allowed. But we need to move to consider our second pair of truths, the church gathered and sent. For the drivers among us, uh, have you ever noticed that on the fuel gauge of your car, kind of right beside that icon, uh, that, that fuel icon, there's a little arrow? Have you ever noticed that? Do you know what that's for? Some people do. It tells you which side the gas tank is on. Now, for a long time, I didn't realize that. I'd just be kind of driving, and then I'd switch cars and be like, oh gosh, which car am I in? Where's the gas tank? And you kind of pop the tank and try to look in your, your, your side mirrors to figure out just, yeah, where did that thing come up? The point is that if, if you don't understand the nature of a thing, you're not likely to relate to it in the ways in which it was designed to work. The authors Colin Hansen and Jonathan Lehman point this out. Your understanding of what a church is will shape your life and your living. Let me read that again. Your understanding of what a church is will shape your life and your living. That's why we need to grow in our biblical understanding of the nature of the church. I want to push you deeper into two fundamental aspects of the nature of the church. The church is gathered and the church is sent. We're going to focus on the gathered nature of the church first, and at much more length. There's this product line that Sherwin-Williams Paint Company makes called Ron Seal. They, they have products like Ron Seal Quick Drying Wood Stain and Ron Seal Quick Drying Clear Varnish. 
So back in 1994, you know, Ron Seal was trying to figure out how they can increase their sales and just communicate better with the market. So they hired an ad agency to kind of demystify their products. And the team they hired came up with a phrase that did precisely that. The phrase was, does exactly what it says on the tin. And the campaign launched and their sales shot up and they became a brand leader. And the phrase itself became an idiom, particularly in the UK, used to communicate that the name of something was an accurate description of its qualities. This is true of the Greek word in the New Testament that we translate church. It means assembly or called out ones. It, it means a group of people who gather together. It wasn't originally a religious word. It would have been used like for political assembly, like, like the Senate or something like that, or even of a mob that had gathered. But it came to refer to this new phenomenon that was sweeping the Roman world as God was gathering people together through the preaching of the gospel. Borrowing language from the Old Testament, the Apostle Peter told believers, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellences of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. The church was exactly what it said on the tin and did exactly what it said on the tin. It was a group of people gathered together who gathered together. This reality is reflected in the Old Testament people of God also. The noun often used throughout the Old Testament for the people of God is congregation. And unsurprisingly, the congregation congregated on regular occasions. Deuteronomy 4.10 recalls the formation of the people of God following the rescue from Egypt. How on the day that you stood before the Lord your God at Horeb, the Lord said to me, Gather the people to me, that I may let them hear my words, so that they may learn to fear me all the days that they live on the earth, and that they may teach their children so. That fundamental shape has not changed. Lehman, whom I quoted earlier, frames it as preaching and people, a gospel word and a gospel society. He says, a church is a group of people gathering to be shaped by God's word. That way they begin to live together as a different kind of people, one that's both in and not of the world. What I want to do is, is spend a fair bit of time looking at some implications of the gathered nature of the church. We've already observed this one, but it bears repeating. Because the church is gathered, the church must gather. Lehman and Hansen sharpen and personalize this point. God wants you to make a priority of gathering with and committing yourself to the local church. In our statement of faith, we say much the same, offering a rationale and an implication that brings together the truths that we're contemplating this morning. This is how we put it. As an expression of Christ's universal church, the local church is the focal point of God's plan to mature his people and save sinners. Therefore, all Christians are to join themselves as committed members to a specific local church. Now, I'm aware that a lot of people struggle with the notion of church membership and with understanding what that should look like in practice. That's partially the fault of many of our churches. Membership can be underemphasized, as if it's merely an administrative matter. It can also function merely as an affiliation on paper rather than meaning that these are the people I'm following Jesus with. It can be abused to control people's behavior, compelling participation and giving. But another reason for the struggle is that 
we're looking for something in the Bible that's not there. In my recollection, and I've kind of tried to comb my mental files, and I bounce this off Sean also, there's no explicit New Testament, New Testament command to become a member of a church. For that matter, there is no positive command to gather together regularly. There is, of course, the well-known command in Hebrews 10.25, which instructs us not to neglect or abandon meeting together. But my point is, we are mistaken if we expect the Bible to command everything that it commands. The Bible is not a book of commands. It's a story which is given to shape how we see the world and therefore determine to walk through it. The Bible therefore illustrates the priority of gathering with and the necessity of belonging to God's people. Story after story just commend this to us. Uh, it, it shows us the goodness of belonging and owning that belonging is actually assumed. Belonging, in fact, is a privilege that is given to us, not one that we opt in and out of. So the scriptures picture the church as a family that we have been adopted into. It, it, they picture the church as a flock that Jesus gathers, as a building that God is constructing, as Christ's body that we are individually parts of, and so on and so forth. No, the modern Western worldview pictures being free and unattached as a positive thing. But in the biblical worldview, alienation and exclusion and isolation are punishments, disciplines, and dangers to us. God places us in his household for our protection and maturity in the faith. God's grace springs up like a fountain in the local church, flowing from him through Christ to us and through us to each other in so many ways. The gathered nature of the church also helps us to understand why the church in this age is so messy and so sinful. It's interesting, because in both the Old and New Testaments, the congregation of God is always mixed. It always contains people who are God's people, genuinely, by faith, and people who do not belong to God. In the Old Testament, not all of those who are Israelites by blood were God's people by faith. And in the New Testament, as Jesus puts it in parable form, he has allowed the wheat to grow alongside the weeds. And he's not going to separate them until the judgment at the end of time. And even genuine believers sin and hurt each other in grievous ways because we have not yet been perfected. So our experience in any local church will not be entirely positive. Tony Merida points out, every church has people who are difficult to love. You may be one of them from time to time. Every church has some crazy uncles and wild brothers and sisters. For evidence that this has always been the case, just read Paul's letters to the Corinthians. But that's the church. Hansen and Lehman add this. Anyone who loves the church must learn to forgive and forbear with Christians. God does not invite us into the church because it's a comfortable place to find a bit of spiritual encouragement. No, he invites us into a spiritual family of misfits and outcasts. He welcomes us into a home that's rarely what we want, yet just what we need. The kind of fellowship God leads us into in a local church is by his own design a unique fountain of grace. That means it cannot be substitute, substituted for with other means of grace. So personal devotions and personal study of the scripture and Bible studies with friends and worship as a family are all good gifts. But they can't replace committed participation in the body of Christ. So what does it look like then to make a priority of gathering? Now, obviously, COVID has been a major barrier in the last almost two years to gathering together. At times, we've just not been allowed to do so. 
When we planted GFC, we had no intention of live streaming our services. That's not because we lacked the technical ability to do that. That was because of our theological, theological conviction. We don't believe that you can actually gather online. But we've embraced doing so as a blessing, but as a stopgap in these times. What's been disturbing to me, and I, I re recall vividly a conversation with a number of church leaders, had online, of course, during COVID, where people were just talking through how, just how this is a great opportunity and how this is a, this kind of quantum leap forward for Jamaican churches. And it's disturbed me to see that stopgap painted as the way forward and as an improvement on what we had before. It's almost like, and I've, I've spoken to people too who have told me, yeah, I really prefer this to going to church. And you know, essentially when you tease it out with them, what they're pointing out is that you get the content without all the inconveniences of going to church. At the end of the day, it's going to be your theological convictions about the nature of the church that will help you to discern the difference between employing a particular approach out of necessity and embracing a particular approach as the way it ought to be. As a local church, we have experienced the fact that there is grace in gathering that cannot come through a screen. That's by God's design. He made us as embodied creatures and then joined us together as a body in Christ. So as we continue to make our way through this pandemic and we don't know what's coming, let's not lose our determination to gather in person. One of the ways that we can make gathering a priority is by not treating Sunday mornings as a free slot in our calendar. So that means don't plan other things for the time you ought to be gathering. I'm not saying that you should never go off for the weekend or that you're sinning if you have to work on a Sunday. I'm saying that as much as you are able to control it, set this time apart for gathering with God's people. Don't treat gathering as what you'll do if nothing else comes up or if you're not too tired to manage. This also means that in a practical sense, one of the things we have to do to set Sunday mornings apart is manage our Saturdays carefully. We have to moderate our pace so that we're rested enough in order to come to church ready to receive from God and to love each other. Sometimes what is evidently our priority is packing in as much as we can on a Saturday. Sometimes way into the night, even when we know we're going to be shattered the next day. So gathering becomes, well, I'll go if I have anything left and I'll give whatever I have left. What about if we started seeing gathering as how God means to refresh us and mature us? to reorient us and retool us, to put us where we can be loved and love others so that we can receive grace for the week to come with many unknown challenges. Now, I want to turn your attention to the church as sent. And I'm going to be brief here. This is what we say in our statement of faith. As the Father sent Jesus into the world, so Jesus has sent his people into the world in the power of the Spirit. The church's mission is to make disciples of all nations, teaching them to observe all that Christ has commanded. We do this by proclaiming the gospel, planting churches, and adorning the proclamation of the gospel through our love and good works. Being sent is fundamental to our identity as Christians. It's not a particular gift or personality type. All of us are sent into the world to make disciples. As God's people, he means for his grace to flow through us to the world around us. It's really important. So why am I only treating it in passing this morning? Uh, I've benefited quite a bit uh, in the last few months from uh, learning from 
a pastor who's now retired named Ray Ortland. He teaches that there are three basic priorities in Christian ministry. Jesus, community, and mission. Now, he's not saying anything revolutionary there. I remember being taught that you can have three directions in this relationship with God. Upward, and, and, as, and as a church really, upward, inward, and outward. And, and, and his categories mirror those. But he goes on to say that there is an order of priority. Jesus first, community second, and mission third. Now, I've been with many church leaders, and I know that would be a debate if I brought that up in mixed company. But I've found it to be very helpful as I think through the priorities for us as a young church. Ortland contends that it is the community that gives traction to all true mission. That's the reason that we think we're going in the right direction by focusing in 2020 on growing as a caring community. In John 13, 35, Jesus said, By this, all people will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. As we grow in our love for one another, the world around us will see that there is something different about us and be attracted to that. And what's going to happen to you naturally is that you're going to want to talk about what's going on here because you're experiencing the blessings of God here. And Trevin Wax pointed out something that uh, I, I think is a very wise and key truth. He says, The effectiveness of the church scattered does not happen apart from the energy of the church gathered. Let me read that again. The effectiveness of the church scattered does not happen apart from the energy of the church gathered. So we must grow in our identity as a local church sent into the world. And we're going to need to teach about that and equip you for that. But what's going to energize you for that and secure you in your identity in Christ is gathering regularly. So why does the church matter? Why should you make gathering a priority? Why should you commit yourself to a local church if you haven't done so? And why should you live out that commitment under leadership and in relationships with your brothers and sisters? The church of Christ is the focal point of God's gracious work in the universe and the fountain of his grace to us and through us. Because that is true, I can say this. We are at the beginning of 2022. How you think about how you approach gathering in a local church is going to have a dramatic effect on your growth in the faith and your fruitfulness this year. Personal, private spiritual disciplines cannot and were not meant to substitute for the corporate discipline of, of belonging to the body of Christ. If you will gather regularly as these times allow in your local church, on Sundays and in small groups, if you will give your attention to the preached word of God and seek not only to hear but to do, if you will seek to maximize your relationships with the brothers and sisters whom you are committed to, leaning in to listen and love and serve and opening yourself to be loved and served, if you will live in this way, I can guarantee you, I can promise you that you will grow and bear fruit and that you'll be a blessing to others. And if you struggle to commit, as many of us do, when, and when you struggle to follow through, as many of us do, cry out to God for His grace. The one who lovingly saved us also lovingly leads us into relationships in his body for our good and for his glory. Let's pray. Lord, as we launch out into this year and look ahead, we want to thank you for giving us vision. Uh, we want to thank you for the direction of your word. We want to thank you for just helping us as pastors to think through priorities. Lord, we thank you for the church. 
in one sense, we glory in the fact that we are the church. We are your people. In another sense, we are humbled by the fact that we are a part of something that is massive and magnificent. Something that was in your mind's eye before the dawn of time. A personal project and a precious people that you have been gathering and purifying uh, throughout uh, the march of history. And who at the end of time will be perfected. Jesus, you will present the church to yourself as a beautiful bride. Without spot and without, uh, and without blemish. We long for that day. We long to be that beautiful bride. Lord, we, we struggle with our own flaws individually and collectively. We, we sometimes are so burdened by our sins and by our inability to change ourselves. But we thank you, Lord, that you are transforming us. And that the inst one of the main instruments of grace you've given us in that transformation is the local church. So, Lord, we pray for Grace Family Church. Not because we are more special than any other church, but because we are a part of this church you've raised up. We have been receiving grace from this church you've raised up. We pray that you'd help us as we chart a course through this year. Help us to love your bride. Help us to love each other. Help us to walk out commitment to each other. Please cause our relationships to deepen and our affection for each other to grow. Please help us to forgive and forbear with one another. Please help us not to change our relationships based on negative interactions and hurts we've experienced. But help us to take those occasions to hold your hand and walk deeper into fellowship with one another. We pray, Lord, that the beauty of Jesus would be seen in this community so that others would be drawn to us even as we speak of you to those around us. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. You have just listened to a message by Joel Bain, the lead pastor at Grace Family Church in St. Catherine, Jamaica. To learn more about Grace Family Church, visit gracefam.church.